0: Uh, An idea was floated early in the week, I think, about having the kids bring their palms up front and spell something with them. Like, you know, Jesus is king. I put my foot down. I'm like, look, I'm not going to draw the whole congregation into palm reading. It's just not going to happen. That's right. That's right. I was so proud of that joke. I can't even tell you. I can't even tell you how my heart lit up when it came into my mind. The final chapter or section in the book that we've been reading together as a church by John Mark Comer, this Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, the last section is called Slowing, which almost seems redundant, right? The whole book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, why would there be a title called Slowing? And It's because of how he's defining slowing is more sort of the practical disciplines associated with a life that is uh, eliminated of unnecessary hurry. So it's like more like the intentional actions that you're taking, the, the, the practical application, the disciplines, you know, that sort of thing. And I would even add, like, the structures that you put in place in your life to help you have the kind of pace uh, that is commensurate with a, with a kingdom life uh, a God-centered life, a Jesus-following life. I, I've brought this... I, I know I bring this model up in a lot of different contexts, so you've probably heard it before, but it's, it's powerful. It, um, it, it's uh, almost immovable as, a, as an idea, as a concept, if you're talking about change, whether you're talking about cultural change or personal change. It's this, it's this progression that goes from values, beliefs... Um, you know, wh- what is core uh, in, in, your, in your being uh, to practices and then to structures, right? You, you can't facilitate change just by believing something. Uh, you can look around the world and see myriad examples. Uh, you can look in your own life. Just because you believe in something doesn't mean it's going to happen. You, you must build practices that are based on those beliefs And then if you want to help yourself even more, you build structures that support those practices that reflect those beliefs. I like to use personal hygiene as a good example. You can believe in personal hygiene, and I think you should. I'm glad you do. Everyone in the room is glad you believe in personal hygiene, but your belief in personal hygiene does not make you clean. You must practice it. You must have practices of hygiene. And then if you have structures, it's even better, right? Uh, you might want to have clean teeth and you can rub whatever on your teeth with your finger. But if you get a toothbrush, some sort of a structure, some kind of a fizzle thing, but you have a practice three times a day, four times a day, after every meal, whatever it is, right? You could, you have a, you could put together a whole room built for personal hygiene, which we have, You've got running water. You've got washcloths and towels and bathtubs and showers and hot, right? You can see how values, reinforced by practices, which can be reinforced by structures, and it works in the opposite direction as well. You, you can build the structures and the practices and bring about new beliefs and new values in, in your life. Um, it's biblical. It's um, biblical. Uh, Paul to the church in Rome says what in verse, uh, in chapter 12, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Look, it's not just about believing in God. I need you to put your body, your physical body into play in this whole concept. James says, faith without works is dead. Right? You can see it. Jesus himself on numerous occasions retreated, physically moved his body to a particular place or some particular places in order to uh, reflect and connect with God. All through the Psalms and even in Acts and and most likely throughout, we see practices of humility. Right? Uh, bowing of the head, closing eyes. We see practices, physical practices of joy, raising palm branches, raising hands. We don't do all those things because they're religious or spiritual. We do the kinds of physical things we do. We have the spiritual disciplines that we have uh, as a community of God because they reflect values and they put our body, our physical body into the same space that our values exist. And then we put structures together to help us even more with that, right? Um, What we're looking at today is the physical structure and the practices of the value of an unhurried life. Uh, The slowing practices, if you will. They're helpful. Uh, the, The book of Jeremiah says, don't run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. There is something to the slowing down that is valuable, that is meaningful, that is commensurate with kingdom life, and we need to figure out what those practices are. I don't know if you've been reading this book along with us. Um, if you haven't and you feel like you're getting a late start, I, I, it's highly recommended. I would do it even though we're wrapping it up. Do it for, do it for yourself. I've had numerous, um, I don't know if they would be epiphanies, but I, I've, it has sparked meaningful thought for me. One of of the tangents of thought that that I went on while I was, uh, I don't even remember what part of the book I was reading. I was, I suddenly started thinking about the endless volume of communications that pass through me and by me every single day. (laughs) The speed at which words move in today's world is dizzying, dizzying. And it's unfortunate that, in large part, those words are somewhat superficial, right? They just—we can just click off a, a message, a short message, long message, whatever. It's just like all over the place. I don't—I don't know how the, the generation that has grown up with that kind of information flow even sorts through it all to find the meaningful words that are worth keeping. You know, I've got two letters from my father. I've got maybe a dozen letters from my mom. I probably have 50 plus letters from uh, my wife from the days when we were dating and separated by a thousand miles. And those, those, that, that, that's a treasure trove of words for me that I hang on to and that I even return to. And I just started thinking how different it is in today's world, a sea of communications that... Um, I I just wondered how we could possibly and so I thought you know what I'm a part of that I'm in the midst of this I I don't remember the last time I wrote a letter I actually do but uh, I'm kind of weird that way maybe because of when I grew up but I thought to myself I gotta find a way to slow down and enjoy the richness of words so I bought a typewriter I literally bought a typewriter. <laughs> Do you remember these? <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. It is awesome. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a mechanically inclined person too. So even the typewriter itself is like genius for the time. This is 1950s Smith Corona. How about that? No number one key. Does anybody remember why there's no number one key? L. Lowercase L, right? That's what you use that. No exclamation point, comma, backspace, period. Or no, like apostrophe, backspace, period. Like this is, and, and so I, I, every, every week I, I have four questions that I answer regard to, with regard to my message. Uh, I ask myself, um, what is this about, you know? Um, Why is it important? Uh, What's the most compelling statement and what do you want people to do? So I typed all those out. You know how long it took me to do that? It's legible in large degree too. There's no corrector letter, you know, thing on this either. You got to slow down. You got to think it through. You don't want to just start writing a sentence. You got to kind of put it in your head first. It's a really, really cool discipline. I'm really enjoying it. I've actually typed out a couple letters. Tammy, did you ever read that one? I wrote you one, didn't I? Did you read it? <laughs> uh, it's, it's, I'm actually enjoying it. But you, you can see um, everything I just talked about. Th- there is uh, something physical there. There's a structure there. There's something. Now, if I put it in my, I have to put it in my week. I have to go, okay, I'm going to, on a daily basis, I'm going to spend, spend 15 minutes and I'm going to, I'm going to, It's going to, you see what I'm saying? It forces me to slow down with my words. The practice and the structure itself works in that direction. We're going to talk about that a little bit more, but let's, let's jump into this a little bit deeper first before we get to the practicals. So, you know what I was rereading uh, in preparation for this, I was rereading the gospels, just looking for slowness in the life of Jesus, in the life of the narrative of uh, of the, the coverage of his life being installed as the, the king of all. Um, and I got to the Sermon on the Mount where there's a lot of very direct teaching. You're, you're familiar with it, Matthew 5 through 7. And from, at least from a particular angle, I thought, yes, pretty much everything that Jesus is asking us to do to live a kingdom life has a certain slowness to it, a certain patience that's required. Maybe, maybe most best illustrated in the passage in la- latter parts of Matthew chapter six, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? And as I dug into this, I found that the word worry means divided into parts to go to pieces, be pulled apart in different directions, to be divided or distracted. So to worry in this context about life is to come to a a, a fork in the road and be be threatened to be divided, to be ripped, like which way do I go to be colluded right there is to be worried about which way to go. And Jesus says, listen, you don't have to Be conflicted. You don't have to be pulled apart. He says, look, the pagans, which are like the the ungodly, those that have really themselves at the center of life, run after all of these things of life contextually. Run after them. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. So seek first his kingdom. You get the sense here that this worry, this anxiety, this this division, this ripping that can happen about the two ways that you could go in this life, one of which is to run and the other is to rest in the fact that God knows what you need. Worrying, hurrying is a faithless, very independent scramble. And the pace of Grace Flourishing, a human flourishing rather than worrying is not faithless. It's faithful. It's not independent. It's in deeper and it's not a scramble. It's slower. Uh, Another book uh, by a Christian talking about the, the unhurried life says when it comes to machines and technology, and I could add, we could add communications and numbers of things. Faster is always better. When it comes to love, when it comes to God, the same is not true. We see throughout the narratives of the gospels, we see throughout the lives of the patron saints and the matron saints of the Old Testament, we see in the teachings of Jesus himself that the pace of grace, the pace of kingdom, the pace of God is slow, and we see this dynamic at play in the very narratives that Pastor Tammy was bringing forth uh, in the worship time this morning, this, uh, this original story of where our Palm Sunday came out of, this celebration, this beautiful moment. It, when you read through the, the narratives of Jesus' life, so rarely does he ever get what he deserves. And in this moment, for this split, almost split second in time, people seem to recognize that he was the solution, and they are celebrating. And it all happens just a tragic few days before the whole thing turns around and goes the other direction. So... I'm going to click back through this just a little bit. He, uh, uh, Tim, Pastor Tim laid the, the groundwork so that these disciples are uh, uh, moving up in the direction of Jerusalem, which which uh, Jesus had been. Uh, he shifted his mindset, his heart, his focus to the to Calvary, really to to climbing to that space. Um, you know, maybe six to eight months before it happened, he was now on his way in that direction. The whole ministry had turned and he knew this was this was going to come to fruition pretty soon. And so he's on his way, but he says to his disciples, go ahead of you to this village. There's a donkey there. Uh, get that, bring it to me. If anyone says anything to you, then just say this. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughters, I see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a, a donkey. So the disciples went and did what Jesus said to do. They brought the donkey. Um, they put their cloaks and their coats on them so Jesus could sit on it. This crowd starts to gather. They're spreading their cloaks on the road. People cut the branches, the trees. They spread out on the road, putting down this sort of you know, red carpet, so to speak, for him. And they started shouting, Hosanna. To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest of heaven. And then he comes into Jerusalem and the whole city is stirred. <laughs> and we have this triumphal entry. Like the stage is set. Jesus has lived this life, this public ministry life that has been unparalleled, unequaled. He's been healing. He's been putting down demonic force. He's been uh, uh, controlling nature itself. He's been raising from the dead. He's been giving sight to the blind. He's been teaching in a way that people cannot deny that he knows something more than anybody else. His life is culminating. There's this procession that's happening. The city is gathering. They're throwing down their leaves and the doors fly open and we expect like he should come flying in there on a stallion in a cloud of dust and jump off and guns blazing, even though there aren't any guns, this is what should happen. And the doors fly open and he comes probably sitting side saddle on a small donkey. Bump-a-dee-da, bump-a-dee-da. I mean, what is, what is going on? But they keep going, Hosanna in the highest, and they say, who is this? And they say, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And you know what? All the sentences before this have exclamation points after them. Hosanna to son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Bombadita. Who is this? This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth uh, in Galilee. Whew. I thought it was gonna be a much bigger thing. Nonetheless, it was a huge celebration. Somehow they got over that pace, somewhat anticlimactic entrance, and offered to Jesus what he so rightly deserved. He is peaking right now. But the whole culmination, the whole thing, which, by the way, you understand the power of that moment. I don't mean to minimize it. It, it, it visually um, it reflects what I'm suggesting to you. But historically, him riding in on a donkey is the, is the, the fruition of a, a, a decades and long thousand year prophecy of the Messiah, the Savior, the coming of the Son of God. This is how uh, the prophets imagined it would be. So when he rode in on that donkey, as unusual it might have looked and seen in terms of pomp and circumstance, it was majestic in terms of the narrative of God and what was expected to happen. Here it was. He's being declared and seen as the Messiah in part because he was on on a donkey. And what happens after that moment, reinforce, uh, again, it, it, it's not what chapters 22 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 that follow this in Matthew aren't strictly about slowing down. But when you look at what's going on in those chapters, almost nothing is going fast. You see in real time in uh, vibrant colors and terms, you see slowness, the wedding banquet, right? He puts out this, this, this master of ceremonies. He puts out this invitation to come to this big wedding banquet and people don't come. Why? Because they're busy. They're attending to their fields and their businesses. It says they're too busy to come to the table and rest with the master. They're too tired. From what they're doing, if, if not just flat out busy. And then they come after, they don't they're not only not come, they, they, they abuse the servants and kill some of those servants. Why? They don't want anybody else going to this meal because they need them working in their fields with them. Don't go after our servants with your servants. We, we need to keep at work here. There's an invitation to enjoy this meal. An illustration, metaphor, to, be, to meet with God. And it requires us to step aside from the busyness and sit and be with. And it's just not the natural tendency of humanity to do that. You see similar things in chapter 23. Um, in chapter 24, Jesus starts talking about the end times. And he says, look, this whole thing is going to grow into an absolute frenzy of violence. And he says, don't worry, breathe. This is going to happen. It's going to happen. Don't be freaked out by it. Don't get swept up in it. Don't worry. Don't be divided. Don't roll into that. Lots of things, important things, are demonstrated and taught by Jesus uh, from the point of that triumphal entry until the moment that Judas betrays him, which happens in Matthew 26. It's not... It's not a stretch theologically to conclude that the reason that Judas betrayed Jesus was out of expediency. Judas was a zealot. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but he was moving too slow. He wasn't getting after it. He wasn't influencing to the degree that he could. He wasn't forcing the issue. And Judas thought, I can force this. I can make this start to happen. And so he sells him out. Why? Because he didn't believe in him? No, because he does believe in him, but he doesn't understand how Jesus is going to go about it, that it's of a different mode and model altogether. Jesus, Judas was wanting to move too fast, arguably. The Last Supper, right? The Last Supper. Jesus knows what's coming. It's a few days off. He should have been planning, right? You would imagine he would be planning some kind of resistance, some sort of an uprising, some way to secure his place in that culture and keep leading and teaching to defend what's coming. He has dinner and they lounge for hours, enjoying one another's presence, the words of Jesus, the love that they shared for one another, You can feel the contradicting pace of grace and of kingdom in the midst of all the craziness. Jesus doesn't change that. He goes to Gethsemane. He prays in solitude. He brings his friends with him. They go to sleep. It's boring. It's slow. When it comes time for the arrest, what does Peter do? Pulls out his sword, which apparently still wearing, (laughs) cuts his ear off, and Jesus like, whoa, 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 no, we're not doing it this way. No resistance. Calm. Slow, peaceful. He goes before the Sanhedrin. These are heated, debating, arguing spaces. Defend yourself before it. What did Jesus do? was silent. He was slow. And then we come to this prisoner exchange in chapter 27. Do you remember this? So Pilate is conflicted and Jesus stands before the governor and the governor says, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so. Uh, When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer, right? He's still calm. He's still uh, moderated. And then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony that they're bringing against you? you? Don't you hear this? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor, right? These moments in Jesus' life are, for me, some of the most profound moments I don't know. Um, Power corrupts us, right? You can see it even in your own life. You certainly see it in the, uh, and in too many of the leaders that surround us. When you have power, it corrupts you. It's pretty hard not to use the power that you have. You've fought for it, right? Not only is it, is it even a negative thing, right? When you have means, when you have capacity, when you can do something that others can't, when you can uh, manipulate the world around you with whatever resources you have, you have got them probably for that purpose. When Jesus doesn't use his power, it blows my mind. It is maybe the most significant spaces of my understanding of uh, my Savior that he was God. He had all of the power, all of it. Everything on earth was under his command. In these moments, he could have proved himself right, justifiably right, He could have argued uh, in a way that would have been an arguable back. He could have brought a, a thousand angels to his rescue and crushed his oppressors. It is not the way of God. It is not the way of Jesus. It is a different way. And the restraint that he showed... In the most oppressive, violating, unjust accusations and beatings, even when he's uh, on his last breath, when you would never fault a person for raising their arm and blocking the hit or dodging. No. He stayed at this pace, with this calm, with this faith, and with this depth. The governor was amazed, and so am I. It was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. And at that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was uh, Jesus Barabbas. Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one of you do you want me to release to you? This Barabbas or Jesus, the Messiah? You know, he's conflicted. He said, this is going to be perfect. I'll put up for them a guy that is utterly reprobate and needs to be thrown in jail, if not worse, and Jesus, and they'll certainly pick the right one. Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat. His wife sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with this innocent man. I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. This is not a good thing, Pilate. You need to back off from this. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. So which of the two do you want me to release? They say, Barabbas. He says, what shall I do then with Jesus? He's called Messiah. What do you mean to do? They said, crucify him. Wow, how quickly everything has turned. Why? He says, what crime has he committed? But they sh- They didn't answer. They just said, crucify him. Pilate's getting nowhere. There's an uproar. He took water. He washes his hands and the whole thing. He says, I have nothing to do with this. This is a bad decision. But I put it before you. You've made it. I'm an innocent man of this man's blood. It's your. This is on you. And the people, listen, they answered. His blood is on us and our children. We are so certain about this about the shedding of his blood. We are so positive about this. We're willing to risk our children for this way of life. So he releases Barabbas. Jesus is flogged and he's handed over to be crucified. I guess we shouldn't be surprised that even after hailing Jesus, we can all relate to this to some degree, can we not? We have, we have said with our mouths and, and, and thought with our brains and felt with our heart that Jesus is the way. And we all have stories. We all have places that we've gone, people that we've become because we didn't honor him. We honored some other way of life. We've all made this very same decision. They make it in spades. But it shouldn't surprise us that the crowd can't fathom that their hopes and their dreams could be fulfilled by such humility, self-control, patience, and measured action. It just didn't add up to them as a people who have been crushed time and time again. They need somebody powerful to come along and inspire them and lead them into battle and crush the enemies around them. And a guy on a donkey ultimately just ain't going to cut it. They can't quite get over their own understanding of what's good and right. And, and what success truly is and what life is, they can't find it. And they see the alternative of sort of, a, well, not sort of, but, a, but a, a man who could be powerful, but continues to choose to not be, at least not in the ways that they want. So they choose a guy that is violent, but he's dynamic and he's inspiring. And he's, he'll call them to arms and he'll lead them in the battle. And the and the and the 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 phrase that they utter this his blood is on us and our children the blood of Jesus and on us and the irony in that statement yeah we believe in this this decision so much that we're willing to risk our children and we all sit in that place too. For those of us that have children, those of that us have, that, have, that, are, that are coaching others, the way we choose to live our life, it does affect the next generation. It doesn't just stop with you or me. His blood, our choice yes, we're willing to take the risk. And go this way with life, even though we know it's going to affect our children and our grandchildren. And then you think about the irony of it that the blood of Jesus is going to be on them and their children in the way of grace and salvation. It's (laughs) moving. Slowing so rarely within our humanity seems to be the right path. It's almost never the path that the crowd takes. The the, the human posture toward Goals and objectives is if they are good, then getting there fast is great. If I've got a good objective, then I, I can get there fast. And, and, the, and the worst case scenario is like, no matter what I have to do to get there, if the end is good, then we do it It's sort of the human impulse. The choice that this crowd made to choose Barabbas um, is not beyond us. We shouldn't judge. The choice is pretty natural. And it will be reinforced with most of the crowds that we find ourselves running with. But it's a trap. It's going to trap you and your children and the generations that follow. We should at least wonder if our goals and our aspirations are right and good. We should ask the question, if I can reach my goals quickly are they the best goals? If reaching my goals requires these kinds of costs, are they the right pursuits? A couple things just want to leave you with here in the last few minutes and seconds of how you might find your way to uh, some slow spaces and some uh, right perspectives and uh, some kingdom-oriented goals. So number, number one really is sort of activate some of these slowing practices. If you read the book, he goes through, I think it's 20 of them in the last section of the book. And they are very, very good, and they are very applicable to today's world. He's talking about how we handle our phones and how we handle the pace of life here and there. And, and he does bring out the, 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 the right core of these practices is that they are uh, fighting against the tendencies of, of crowd and of culture. I, again, you, you can't just believe or want to live a life aligned with God. You've got to put into play practices and structures that work against the alternative. And he goes into a whole bunch of those. It's, it's really worth uh, looking into. It'll, it'll prime the pump for you. And you'll be able to think of some that, that apply to your own life even better if those don't. But it's a very great... Uh, little uh, section of the book at the end there. So you want to discover and develop practices and structures that demand slowness and work against the natural frenetic pace of today's societies because they're critical to your human flourishing. Right? Jesus said, listen, you're, you are going to find these places of anxiety. You're going to find your, your, yourself at these forks in the road. And he said, one of those ways is very easy and very enticing, the wide gate. And, and then there's the narrow gate. And he says, you're, you're going to want to go down the narrow path. You're going to go down the one that isn't most natural, isn't most obvious that most of the crowds aren't going down. He's saying, look, build the practices and the structures of the narrow road. I think you got a handout this morning. It's sort of a little bit of a guide through, the, through Holy Week here, uh, prayer prompts and things like that. I would use that, maybe even that structure, and add into your time this week, God, where and how do you need me to slow down, particularly in my life? Use it that way. The second thing, and maybe I'm already implying this, is that you have to, you have to analyze your life. The influences of the modern world, and maybe even even historically, really, if you just if you put yourself back in time, maybe it's really not all that di- different. The, the the forces and the influence of the, sort of the crowd mentality and the societies and the cultures that uh, usually exist are designed to keep you distracted, <laughs> unfocused. Uh, uh, they're attention-bouncing kinds of methodologies, frenetic activity of mind and body, really. And you have to sit down and and. Th- Pause and think. Okay, how am I being influenced? What what kind of practices and structures are in my life that I never even really intentionally chose? Well, where is it that I'm being swept along uh, uh, along the the wrong path, and I don't even realize it? I think it was Socrates that said the unexamined life is not worth living. You, you, you got at some point, you got to sit and reflect and allow God to show you these really the air in your ways. All of the godly people throughout the scriptures were reflected and paused and asked for the enlightenment of God in their life. Jesus himself in the most critical moments would bow his head and go before God and hear again who he was and what he was here for. To not be distracted by all of the pressures to change and be something that he wasn't intended to be. The unexamined life isn't really worth living because you're being controlled and manipulated and pushed around and you don't even know it. This, This illustration must be a million years old. You don't want to climb the ladder of life to find out it's leaning against the wrong wall at the end of your life. You are doing things every day that amount to something and that brings some result and some re- reward or promises to. Do you know that? Do you, do you, do you, have you made conscious decision to be uh, doing those things? And is that something, the right something that you're aiming for? You, you've got to, at some point, sit, if not regularly, allow God to enlighten you to where you are and we are offline line. Who or what has inspired your aspirations? Who or what has set the order of your life and the priorities of your life? You might think that you have, but most of the time we've been largely influenced by our culture and by the crowds that we run and we don't even realize it. I would suggest that if you haven't examined your life, you're being pushed around. But you can discover what is most important, what is most worth it, what is most healthy, what is in your best interest. But it requires you to slow down to even discover it, and then what you'll find is it requires you to stay slow to stay on the right course. Second, I would say, or third, I guess the first one was just activate some slowing things. Analyze your life. The last one would be to adjust toward immeasurable immeasurable goals, some immeasurable goals and some immediate content in life. In the end of that passage where I was reading from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will give to you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Slow down, pause, understand what the objectives and the purposes of God are. Find those things And work in those directions. And what you'll find is that those things don't require speed. They don't require actually even a lot of planning, a lot of working toward tomorrow. What is the kingdom in its simplest form but the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. In a sense, these things don't require even a ton of work. And they are all happening when? Really, today. If you're loving well or you're joyful, if you're full of peace and patience and kindness and goodness, it's right now. Throughout the scriptures, even with the, sort of the cursory glance that I went through uh, much of the New Testament this week, the pace of the graces of God is slow. Kingdom life is a, is a measured life in terms of pace. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Each day gives us the opportunity to live a kingdom life. This word from Jesus suggests that your most important work and fruit is today. Today. That's a, that's, think about that for a little bit. Take that into your quiet time this week. If you never realize that a significant part of your purpose for living is to do today as well as you can, why would you ever slow down? If today matters arguably more than anything else, just today, you, we, would, we, would, we would have to slow down. What would you do if today was your last day? Would it be different? Why? You would do the most important things. And Jesus is saying, that is the most important thing, to slow down and be my servants, my people today. Right here. Just just get your typewriter out, man. Just start typing. Just right here. Martha and Mary, right? Martha's scurrying about. Again, these are, this is the, Mary has chosen the right thing to slow down and be with me. Some of the last things that happened before uh, the final push to the crucifixion one of them is this woman who just anoints Jesus with this expensive oil. She pours out what has been either worked for by her lineage or herself and pours it out today for him in a very quiet, unadorned moment. And this little guy, Zacchaeus, he gives his it's <laughs> nuts. This is all coming apart. And he sees this guy in a tree He says, let's have some lunch. Let's hang out. Let's relax. Who are you going to choose? I'll finish with that question. Who are you going to choose today? You're going to choose Barabbas or Barabbas? Barabbas means son of the father, lowercase f. Barabbas is a son of this world, and he will lead you in the ways of this world, the frenetic pace of power and speed and very little concern about today. Or you can choose who Jesus was referred to as, Barabbas. Son of God, Son of the Father, capital F. Who are you going to choose? You don't need to worry if you choose the Son of God, if you choose Jesus' way. God knows what you need. He will provide. And we choose him. God, we choose again and again and again as a church to follow you. We get it wrong, and we're very thankful that we are covered in our wrongfulness, in our bad decisions, in our shortcomings, in our moments of weakness. We are covered by the blood of the very one who we would arguably have sent to the cross as well, and do in many ways. But we rest. Above all else, we rest in the grace that you showed in the work of your son and his resurrection. We go into this week humbly, God, knowing where it's going to end and knowing where it's going to end. But we go in with faith and at rest in the security that we have, in the assurances that we have, in the forgiveness that we have. Thank you for that rest. God, would you help us deepen that rest and have it ripple out into the rest of our life? God, we love you. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for your church, the love that we share, the mission that you have us on, the grace that you shower with us. We are indebted. Help us to walk in accordance with your word. In Jesus' name, amen.